So the newspaper headlines in the New York Times this past week caught my attention because it said, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. The story that followed was of a tragic event that happened down in Southern California. A group of Christians had gathered to baptize people, and one of the men who was helping baptize was actually caught by a rogue wave that sucked him out to sea and he drowned. I read the story, and then I scrolled down into the comments section. Probably shouldn't have done that, but I did it anyway. And in the comments section, people poured out their views and opinions and a little bit of hate and a bunch of assumptions, and the phrases just kind of caught my attention. It must have been karma. He must have done something really bad. God is cruel. Death is an illusion. Don't even worry about it. Where was Jesus? More proof that God is not real. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And then, of course, the big question, why? We all ask that question, right? Why me? Why them? Why now? Why God? And none of us is immune to the question of pain and suffering. As sure as the sun rose in Whatcom County this morning, just in case you were wondering, that was that big thing in the sky that some of you saw. You haven't seen it in a while, but that's what it was. As sure as the sun rose this morning, we're all going to have to deal with the question of suffering. The question for many is, where in the world is God when I'm hurting? Well, that question has been asked for centuries The philosopher Epicurus asked the famous question about God and suffering. 300 years before Jesus even arrived, he asked this question about God. Is he willing to prevent evil but not able? Then he's impotent. Is he able but not willing? Then he's malevolent. Is he both able and willing? Whence then is evil? We're going to dip our toe, and I I just need to say this at the beginning. You cannot answer the question of pain and suffering and its role in the world today in 27 minutes, okay? Can't be done. So we're just going to dip our toe in it. But before I begin, I want to make two quick statements. Number one is this. Could we agree this morning that we are inequitable when we ask the question why? We ask the question why when things in our life are going bad, but we never ask it when they're going good, right? Right? When was the last time you heard somebody say, you know what, I got a raise this week. Why did God do that to me? Why did God do that? I went to my refrigerator and there were multiple options inside of that. Why has God burdened me with the decision between burritos and tacos? I mean, when was the last time you had somebody say, I had multiple choices of transportation this morning. I could have taken the car or the truck. Why has God burdened me? With this deep amount of pain, I have a 72-inch big screen in my living room. Why, God, why? We're inequitable, right? Second statement, every faith system, even faith systems of unbelief, have to deal with the question of pain and suffering. I don't care if you're an atheist, an agnostic, a universalist, a Buddhist, or a follower of Jesus, everyone has to answer this question. But I think it's important to know, for most people, they expect us to have an answer. They really do. Now, it's completely illogical to only think that Christ followers have to try and answer this question, but the truth is everyone has to struggle with this. So let's talk about some common approaches to the question of pain and suffering. Okay, here's a common approach. I broke it into three words, ignore, deny, or enlighten, okay? There are people involved in New Age philosophy and Eastern mysticism that would say that pain and suffering are just an illusion, and your job as a human being is just to find a way around it. You need to transcend suffering. All you need to do is find your place of Zen, and then what is happening to you is just going to disappear and fade into the background. They will say pain is simply an illusion, it needs to be managed, or it needs to be conquered. 
Now, the sad thing is there's actually a branch of Christianity that dances on the edge of this kind of philosophy that basically says if something bad happens to you or someone that you love, your answer, you just need to summon enough faith. And if you summon enough faith and put it in the right kind of a formula, you're going to be okay. But if you admit at any level that what you're going through is actually a reality, God is going to judge you, be it ever so harshly. I ran into this a couple of weeks ago. A family would not come to the bedside of their dying father because they believed to walk into the hospital was to acknowledge what was actually happening to their dad and that if they did that, that somehow God was going to get really, really angry and he was going to smite them and kill their dad because they didn't have enough faith. Okay, can we just set the record straight on that one? That is not how God is. Can I get an amen on that one? Here's a second common approach, it's deserved retribution, okay? This is the belief that somehow you must have done something bad and the pain and suffering you're now experiencing in this life or in a former life is because you did a bad, bad thing. We have a word for it in our culture, we call it karma, right? You did bad and now you've got to pay for it until the universe gets even. When I was in India, every time we would stop our car, I was faced with deserved retribution. A kid came to the window, tapping on the window, visually maimed. And I actually went just to reach my hand out, but the driver thought that, that, that I was actually going to give money, and he got angry at me and said, don't do that. Don't do that. And so I asked the question, why doesn't anyone help these children? So they're called Dalit children, which means they're from the lowest ca caste in their system. They're, they're the outcasts. And I'm like, why doesn't anybody help these people? And I'm thankful there are some crazy followers of Jesus over there that are doing that. But for the most part, they're absolutely ignored. And I'm like, why isn't anybody doing anything? And the reason that I got over and over again is they're basically getting what they deserved. And if you help them, you're going to interrupt the natural flow of the universe and it'll just doom them to repeat the cycle over and over again. So don't do anything because it's basically their fault anyway. Here's another common approach. I called it impugning moralism. Okay? That's what we believe, the idea of, uh, of deserved retribution. Like when I just said that, it was amazing in the room. Everybody kind of just like went, really? That just doesn't seem right. We think that that idea is wrong, and so we just rename it in our culture. I called it impugning moralism, and it kind of sounds like this. It's always done secondhand, but it's when you look at somebody else's pain and you go, they must have done something. They must have done something. This is the subtle belief that the answer to pain and suffering comes in, in the right formula. You've got to pray the right prayer, do more good things than bad things, try harder and work harder, because if you could just make God happy again, then you'll cease to suffer. Here's another approach, very common. It's the approach of cynicism. Okay, this is the position of unbelief or non-belief. So I have an agnostic friend. We're creating a relationship, and I got permission to be able to share this with you because we were having a conversation. I said, so you come from a position of non-belief or unbelief. How, how do you factor in this whole idea of pain and suffering? And this is how he broke it down for me. If God is all-powerful, loving, and perfect, then a loving, perfect God would create a universe that was without suffering. But the universe contains evil and suffering, therefore God does not exist. You know, it drives my buddy crazy when I say, you do realize that's a faith position, right? Like, I have my faith in belief. You're just putting your faith in non-belief. It's a faith position. He doesn't like it when I say that, but 
we're working that out. In our last conversation, I, I stated, I said, you know, it's amazing to me, almost somewhat ironic that, that you use the reality of pain and suffering to disprove the existence of God. And that's the exact same premise that I use to prove the existence of God. And the, and the reality is this. Jesus didn't deny or ignore pain, nor did He say or take the position that somehow you deserve it and this is some form of cosmic punishment, nor did Jesus turn it into a religious formula that was basically a pass-fail proposition, nor did He allow it to make Him cynical. Instead, this is where it gets so good. Jesus messed with every faith system that ever was and ever will be when He entered into pain and suffering and fully participated in it. I told my friend, here's the amazing thing. I said, I love the fact that Jesus got his hands dirty. In pain and suffering, he fully participated in it. And that's what gives me hope when I'm going through the same kind of stuff. I said, out of that pain and suffering, I get unbelievable hope. And he said, and I quote, and my position just leads me to a place of utter despair. So let's just take some time and dip our toe in a really, really difficult conversation, okay? So get your coffee or whatever else you need in order to stay with me, but let's walk through. See, you see, over the next couple of weeks, we're going to have this amazing little thing. It, it almost looks like an interruption, but I, I actually would call it God's sovereignty. See, we're going to talk today about pain and suffering, and then over the next couple of weeks, we're going to look at the pain and the suffering of Jesus as we get ready to walk through Easter. And we're going to have to process it. We're going to have to understand it. Because why in the world would God decide to subject Himself to pain and suffering? You know why? Us. So, 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 so let's just kind of entertain a, a conversation for a little bit. Let, let's look at, if these are common approaches, what's a biblical approach to pain and suffering? Well, we're going to go old school classic, okay? Let's go back to an Old Testament book, the book of Job. Job chapter 1 verse 1 says, in the land of Uz, there lived a man whose name was Job. And this man was blameless and upright and he feared God and he shunned evil. Okay, here's what we need to get. Job was living a righteous and exemplary life. Okay, the Bible goes so far as to say that he was the greatest man among all the people of the East. Why is that so important? Because we do math in our head. He's a good guy, therefore he shouldn't suffer. Surely he's immune from suffering. I mean, even God says he's an upright and righteous man. And we're like, how does that go together? Because the book of Romans says there's no one righteous, not even one. So Job was a good guy, but it didn't make him immune. So if, if, if the world was an old school Western, everybody gets a black hat, only Jesus gets to wear a white hat, right? And Job, as much as he was a good man, he wasn't good enough. Now, that wasn't why he went through suffering. He was just living the life of humanity that we all have, which is God is perfect and we're not. The story continues, verse 7. It moves from the, the, the place of earth to the place of heaven, and a conversation is happening. The Bible says, the Lord said to Satan, where have you come from? Okay, just so we're clear, God didn't ask the question because He didn't know the answer. All right, does that make sense? All right, I know exactly where you've been. I'm just, we're having a dialogue, okay? Satan answered the Lord from roaming throughout the earth, going back and forth on it. Then the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There's no one on earth like him. He's blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. Does Job fear God for nothing? Satan replied. 
Have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? You've blessed the work of his hands so that his flocks and herds are spread throughout the land. But now, stretch out your hand, strike everything he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, very well then. Everything he has in your power is in your power, but on the man himself do not lay a finger. Then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Okay, this conversation just freaks people out because it appears like Job is just kind of a play toy. He's just a cosmic pawn getting batted back and forth between Satan and God. Okay, hold on to that thought. We're going to come back to it. Satan leaves, and if you read the story, Job is crushed by a wave of pain and suffering. All of his children die. His home is destroyed. His livelihood is stripped away. He's left with nothing. But at the end of chapter 1, which by the way is not the end of the story, but it's a beautiful part of the story, he's left with nothing but his grief, his pain, and his suffering, and his response to it is both sobering and challenging. Verse 20 says, so at this, now remember, okay, let's not just sanitize it so we feel better. At this, his kids are dead. His home is gone. Everything he's counted on has been ripped away. At this, Job got up and tore his robe and shaved his head. Middle Eastern grief, okay? Then he fell to the ground in worship. Underline those words, in worship. And said, naked I came from my mother's womb, naked I will depart. The Lord gave. And the Lord's taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. And in all of this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. There are some principles in here that we've got to know before we can even contemplate this crazy idea of pain and suffering. We're going to look at it in Job's life this morning. We're going to look at it in the life of Jesus all the way through Easter. And I believe we need to keep some principles in mind as we have this conversation. And and I want to make sure I give credit where credit is due. Okay, I didn't think this stuff up. I stole it from Pastor Tim Keller because he's really smart and I'm not. Okay, so when you're dealing with pain and suffering, here's what I believe we can learn from the book of Job. We need to avoid the pat answers. I mean, let's stay away from a surface understanding of suffering. We went to the book of Hebrews in the very first week and said, let's leave behind an elementary understanding. So let's come to grips with the fact that this is a really, really deep topic, but it's so easy just to stay on the surface. In fact, some of us have already done it, right? We read the first chapter of Job, and this is our conclusion. Job's a pawn, Satan sucks, and God is cruel. That's where we end up. The truth is, if you plumb the depths of the book of Job, you see this is an amazing, epic picture, not only of God's relationship with Job, but God's relationship with suffering. I mean, if you look deeply, you understand this. God didn't create the earth as a place of suffering. This place was perfect until we broke it. It's man's sin that led to evil and subsequently suffering. I mean, the reality is this. Some of us have to look at our suffering and understand that we actually did it to ourselves, right? So I have a friend who has no problem telling you he smoked for 52 years. So he's not surprised or shocked by the fact he has lung cancer. In fact, he's taking responsibility for it. The beautiful thing is even in, even in what he did to himself, God has entered in and allowed him to graciously walk through it, even though it's unbelievably, unbelievably painful. But I want you to notice something here. It's so important to know. Using evil in Job's life is Satan's idea. 
God's not complicit with evil. God's not the author of disease or disaster or death. And so it's a pat answer to say, God is the source of everything. That includes my suffering, so let's just forget God. Let's leave Him out of it. We need to avoid the pat answers because they fill in the blank, God is incorrectly. Here's some, here's some religious pat answers that you will find going through pain and suffering. Some of you have heard this before, right? God will never give you more than you can handle. Anybody heard that before? This might knock you some, out, uh, some of you out of your seat. That's not biblical. It's not biblical. In fact, I'm going to tell you something. God will often give you more than you can handle. So instead of just pulling yourself up by your bootstraps and keeping on walking, you'll actually fall on your face and say, God, I can't do this on my own. To which God responds, absolutely, you finally got it, but I can I have limitless power, limitless answers, limitless joy, limitless passion, and all of it is directed towards you because you're one of my children. You can't handle it. That's the point. But I can. So cast all your anxiety on me because I care for you. But we've got to be careful with that pat answer. Here's another one. I heard it a couple of weeks ago in a hospital room. I just about choked. Well, God must have needed another angel. Really? People hear that, and you know what their deduction is? Well, then God's cruel. I tried to step in in that moment because the family that I was with had just lost a child. I said, I don't believe God needed another angel, but I do know this. God knows exactly what it feels like to lose a child. Because He did. That, that's on the religious side. There, there are pat answers on the unbelieving side as well, right? God's dead. Who cares? That's a pat answer as well. So we're going to avoid the pat answers as we walk through this. Now, here's a second principle that's even probably more difficult. We need to accept living without an answer. You know, the truth is you may never get a satisfying answer to the question of why on this side of heaven. I mean, if you read Job, he never gets an answer, but he continues to trust God even without an answer. You've got to ask the question, how is that possible? Well, if you look into the text, Job chapter 1, you actually see God bragging about his kid. He's bragging about Job, and he said he's blameless and upright. He's a man who fears God. Now, when we hear the word fear, we think I'm, I'm supposed to be afraid of him, right? That would not be the understanding that an Old Testament person would have read. If they read this, the word fear literally means inward awe and wonder. Job was awestruck by God. God stopped him in his tracks, stole his words, because Job just didn't have words to be able to explain who God was. So that's what's rooted in his soul. Now listen to what Satan says next. Does Job fear God for nothing? Satan replied. Have you not put a hedge around him in his household and everything he has? You blessed the work of his hands so that his flocks and herds are spread throughout the land. But now stretch out your hand and strike everything he has and he will surely curse you to your face. Okay, this is what Satan is saying to God. Job doesn't love you for you. Job loves you for the stuff that you give him. And if you take away the stuff, he'll hate you. He'll spit in your face. You see, God, this is how it really works. It's not about you. It's about the stuff. And as soon as the stuff goes away, Job will be done. Let's do an experiment. 
Okay, let's get really, 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 really personal. Christ the King. Do you love God for who God is or only for what He gives you? So I got one quiet amen from the back corner of the room. Do you love God for who God is or just for the stuff that He gives you to make your life easier? I mean, I want you to think about this, okay? Suffering is a removal. Sometimes it's a removal of health. Sometimes it's a removal of wealth. Sometimes it's a removal of the way life used to be. Sometimes it's the removal of dignity. Some of us have a hard time with that one. I just want to remind you, if you feel like someone sinned against you and removed your dignity, the king of the universe was stripped naked and nailed to a cross in public. He gets it. Sometimes it's the removal of freedom. Sometimes it's the removal of safety. This is what blows me away about God. He put His Son in harm's way. And if you need to know why, look no further than the platform at Christ the King Community Church. If you need to know why, He's doing it for me. Doing it for you. When it's all stripped away, do you love God for God or simply for what He gives you? I mean, the person who loves God for God is able to suffer without an answer because their ultimate trust is not in the things of the world, but in the character of the God who holds them and joins them in their suffering. Job never really gets an answer to the question, why? And as I've been reading my Bible this week, I was just struck by something. Neither did Jesus. Jesus never got an answer. I mean, in both cases, in both of their lives, we see this difficult truth. Okay, make no mistake, God hates it when you hurt. God hates evil and suffering. He hated it when it was hitting His son. He, he hates it when it hits His sons and His daughters. Even when, when we bring suffering on ourselves, because we live a lifestyle that has consequences, even in that, God hates that because He doesn't want to see His child hurt. Okay? So God hates evil and suffering. And yet Scripture teaches us that because suffering is a fact of life, God is powerful enough to be able to use it. But I want to make sure, just be careful, you don't get anything else, make sure you take this with you. Okay? God hates evil and suffering, but He will use it in our lives for one purpose and one purpose alone, and that's to ultimately defeat Satan's purpose for the evil that was unleashed on you. Okay, now just stick with me, okay? What did Satan want in Job chapter 1? He wanted to break the relationship between God and Job. That's what he wanted. He still wants the same thing. He wanted Job to, to turn his back. He wanted Job to walk away. He wanted the suffering to break Job, and he wanted the same for Jesus. Satan wanted Jesus in his suffering to admit defeat. He wanted, the, he wanted Jesus to break under the pressure. He wanted to defeat God by, the crushing, or by crushing the love that both of them had for God. That's what he wanted. Here's the awesome news at Easter time. It didn't work. His plan was thwarted because Job and Jesus both decided not to turn God into their most convenient enemy because they were suffering. Instead, they chose to attach themselves to their most powerful ally, an ally who earned his stripes by stepping into pain and suffering. 
the exact opposite of what Satan wanted occurred. And in the suffering, Job clung to God, and this is what he said. Here's my modern translation. I came into this world vulnerable, and I'm going out of this world vulnerable, but in the meantime, I will choose to worship even when there's no answer, and the things are gone because the God that I love and trust is with me and for me. Jesus said it a different way. It's finished. Into your hands I commit my spirit. Vulnerable, naked, abused, hurt. Into your hands I commit my spirit without ever having an answer to the question, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In case you've already forgotten it, the reason God had to totally abandon and turn His back on His Son is because Jesus was wearing the sin of Grant Ernest Fishbrook. And you can put your name there too. You know, I think we just kind of blow through that, right? Jesus was fully abandoned, and yet His suffering pushed him and propelled him to a place of joy because he saw God in it. Not insulated, not enlightened, not cynical, but actually in it. Here's the final principle. I think we need to anticipate a greater and a final answer. You know, the reason for our suffering one day will be revealed. God says, someday I'm going to explain it all to you. I love that. No other faith system has that promise. In fact, in most faith systems, pain and suffering is just inconsequential. You just, it's your job just basically to suck it up and get through it. But not with Jesus. You know, Jesus held the long view in His suffering. It's so easy, isn't it, when we're hurting? We just kind of get stuck right there in that moment because it hurts. And can we just admit that pain hurts? Yeah. I mean, I don't, think, I don't think we're going to get struck by lightning if we just admit sometimes pain really, really hurts, but we have to have the long view. What do I mean by that? What allowed Jesus to endure the cross so that He could embrace the joy afterwards? You know what it was? It was because He understood that it was going to create salvation for me and you. He was anticipating a different conversation. See, in Job chapter 1, there's a conversation between God and Satan. Jesus is keeping a long view on the other side of the cross because he's picturing another conversation, a conversation that would happen after he'd been dead and buried in a tomb for three days. Because that conversation went something like this. When Jesus burst through the gates of hell, grabbed Satan by the throat, pinned him up against the wall, and said, excuse me, I'm here for the keys the keys of life and death, and I will take them by force if I have to because my children are worth it and they're hurting and they're wrapped in pain and suffering and this is what I'm saying to you. It is finished. I mean, that's the joy of Easter. God! He saw the ultimate good. On the other side of the cross was a tomb with a stone rolled away. On the other side of that were 400 individual conversations that confirmed the beauty of the resurrection of Jesus. On the other side of that was an ascension when Jesus and his father were reunited and now anticipating another conversation in eternity when you're going to run across the finish line and he will grab you and say, well done. Even without an answer, you held on. The Apostle Paul put it this way. I mean, Paul, I mean, you read his life, it's just like, man, that guy went through some stuff, right? 
Romans 8, 18. I consider that our present sufferings are not even worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed in us. It's a good verse. The pain of what they were going through in the moment faded in light of the glory that was coming. I tell you what, people think because you're a pastor that you're immune to this stuff. It's not true. You know what conversation I'm looking forward to? I'm looking forward to the conversation when God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit pull back the curtain of my life and explain to me why one of the most godly men in my family, my brother-in-law, Alan, died of colon cancer. I'm looking forward in faith to that moment when God said, okay, just for the record, it wasn't punishment, it was protection. And look at everyone else that was touched. And look at all of the things that I just orchestrated together because Alan knew me. We need to look at the long view. I can't wait for him to do the same thing about Laurel's dad and my 15-year-old niece, Tanya. And the list, it just goes on and on and on and on. I'm looking forward to that moment when God says, if you need to understand the why, look at this. When Jesus walked through Easter, because he kept the long view and anticipated a greater and final answer, I believe that in that moment, his love was on complete and full display. Make no mistake, when you're hurting and you're suffering, God's love is not gone. In fact, it may be more apparent than at any other time in your life. Because a God who could have insulated himself from pain and suffering instead entered in fully and completely. So I learned a long time ago that as a man, I don't get to make social commentary about childbirth. Okay? When I, when, when, when I talk about childbirth, I do it out of a level of unbelievable respect because I watched my wife give birth to both of our children, and I already respected her here, but when we were done that process, I mean, my respect was off the charts. And as a guy, I just shut my mouth, and I cheer and go, wow. <laughs> Amen from the men, right? Okay. Or maybe from the ladies, right? Yeah. <laughs> Laurel had a difficult time in Braden's labor. Uh, it was just hard. And I watched her racked with pain. She suffered for a really long time. When Braden was born, the nurse took him and got him all cleaned up and did a bunch of things that I'm not sure you should be able to do, but they do because that's what they do. And, and then she handed him to me and I had to look at him and go, well, yeah, that's a really ugly kid. Um, <laughs> because a really big cone head and I'm thinking, Jesus, could you round that up? Because otherwise, that kid will never wear a hat, ever. Like, ever. I'd be like, woo. Then, <laughs> I'm thinking about trading them in. You know, it was just... <laughs> but I'm holding my son, and I walk over, and I place him in the arms of the girl who did all the work. She hurt. I didn't. She suffered. I didn't. 
And as she looked at this new life in her hands, and we'll never forget what she said. I'd do it again. I mean, the pain hadn't even faded. It was, it was literally seconds old. But because of new life, I was like, I'd do that again. The pain hasn't even faded from Jesus, but he looks across the family of Christ the King. He says, I know you're hurting and I know you're suffering, but when it comes to you, I want to make this declaration. I'd do it again. I would suffer and hurt if it meant you having a new relationship so that you and I could both enter into new life. So as we come into this Easter season, I know some of you are desperately hurting. May you be able to fill in the blank. God is with me. Let's pray. Father God, I pray for my brothers and sisters here today because I know there's pain in the room. God, I thank you that you are God who did not insulate yourself, sidestep pain, but instead you entered in so that we could have a great high priest who, who can not only sympathize with our weakness, but actually has lived it. So Father, as we walk into Easter this year, would you give us a different perspective? Would you allow us to hear you whisper to us, I did it and I would do it again. Father, may our hearts be open today. Father God, I thank you that you thwarted Satan's plan in the life of Jesus, in the life of Job, and I pray that his plan would be thwarted in ours. That instead of taking the pat answer and pushing you away, that instead we would fall on our face and worship you as the God who understands firsthand pain and suffering. God, would you help us to have the long view, knowing that one day we will get a final and greater answer. Lord, in the meantime, we simply ask for grace. Grace to endure. Grace to believe. And grace to cling. And Father, I thank you that this is not about our ability to cling to you but it's about your ability to cling to us. So, Father, would you hold us? Would you allow us to say, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.